Welcome to the Due Diligence Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. And for more than 10 years with SNN, I've been doing interviews with microcap management teams at investor conferences globally, as well as online. Our SNN Live CEO video interviews are meant to pique interest, and then one can discover more by going to that company website. But personally, I always have more questions I want to ask. On this show, I'll be chatting with public company executives from microcap companies, and we'll dive deeper into companies that are rarely profiled. Microcap traditionally is overlooked, unloved, and absolutely never featured on legacy financial media outlets unless something material is going on that's a good story. With my experience interviewing management teams, having interviewed most of them before, I've built up a network of companies, so there will be no shortage of content. Furthermore, this is an opportunity for me to showcase some of the qualitative lessons I've learned from guests on the Planet Microcap podcast. You can expect high-quality interviews with management teams that may have exposure to broader macro trends that you may never have thought of, one of the many reasons why I love the microcap space. So if you love microcaps and especially love learning about companies before the professionals do, let's start our due diligence. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party products, services, or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast. My guest on the show today is Jeffrey Gwynn, CEO and CFO of Eastside Distilling, publicly traded company. The symbol is EAST on NASDAQ. The company has been producing high-quality, award-winning craft spirits in Portland, Oregon since 2008 with a product lineup that includes Azunia tequilas, Burnside whiskeys, Hue Hue coffee rum, and Portland potato vodkas. Eastside's craft canning and bottling subsidiary is one of the Northwest's leading independent ready-to-drink canners. Jeffrey and I talk quite a bit about Eastside's craft canning and bottling subsidiary, and I learned more about canning in our conversation than I ever thought I would know. Um, but, but all jokes aside, we also discuss managing supply chain issues in this environment, why the industry is running out of aluminum cans, what makes Eastside unique and different compared to their peers. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Jeffrey Gwynn, CEO and CFO of Eastside Distilling. Welcome to the Due Diligence Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today is Jeffrey Gwynn. He is the CEO of Eastside Distilling. It's a publicly traded company. The symbol is EAST, E-A-S-T on NASDAQ. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Thanks for having me. I, I just appreciate you know you hosting us uh, in the in your virtual in the in the, in the lab. You know, for those in watching, those listening, it's, go go to watch it on YouTube. Uh, he's got he's got us is, in the lab. It is the lab. It's also what my wife calls the cave. I disappear here after dinner and and start uh, sampling some of the things we have at at Eastside. But uh, yeah, this is a special place. So, so Jeffrey, you know, we're, we're going to get into the, the full history and everything because, I, I mean, I've known the company. I think we did an interview with a previous management regime like six or seven years ago. But, but before we get into all that, and we definitely will in my next question, but first off, what would you say is that one line that best describes Eastside Distillery? It is an innovative Portland-based company. And the way I would describe it is it's a company that has uh, no reservations to bring in the best products and, you know, canning services, frankly, uh, uh, craft services for craft beverage um, uh, manufacturers in the Pacific Northwest. And our goal is to drive it and, and bring it, you know, to other regions of the United States. Very good. And that's craft with we, the C. That's craft with the C, right? I, sh- I don't have to charge for any kind of royalty. Okay. And the tagline inside the company is unapologetically uh, original, right? So we're not going to you know, uh, you know, hide behind the fact that we're from Portland. We're, you know, out front of a lot of issues and uh, the same thing with the, with the products that we, uh, we, we bring to the market and the services we offer. Very good. All right, let's get into a little history. Let's, let's, let's go down, sure. let's go down history lane a little bit. Like I said, 
I interviewed former management like six, seven years ago or something like that. You know, I, I, I couldn't find on the website exactly when you joined the business. Um, you know, so love to just better understand from a historical perspective, the original problem that, that East side was looking to solve and yes. whether, how, how that's evolved over time. So really was started as the concept of being an incubator of brands, you know, a lot of people have this great idea of you know, building spirit brands and, and developing them and then selling, them, right? And they started with uh, a number of their own brands and then they launched with a partnership with uh, a country music singer by the name of John Rich, who's been very uh, um, creative about building his own brand with the brand Redneck Riviera. And so we partnered with him and uh, actually the former management team partnered with him and started a, a nationwide rollout of a bourbon uh, blended actually whiskey called Redneck Riviera. And uh, we got down the road of that and it turned out to be a very difficult rollout to do something, uh, you know, basically across the United States. And we parted ways with John Rich a couple of years ago and have since focused on our own spirit brands as well as our uh, craft canning division. Got it. And and what when was it when was it that you you ended up joining the company and what what was it that attracted you to the East Side distilling opportunity here? That's a great question. So my background is not in you know managing a spirits company or for that matter uh, you know a small a smaller small cap company. I actually started in finance on the investing side. I started you know my career at Citibank and then later went to work for uh, one of the early uh, builders of the CLOs uh, um, the you know debt funds and left there and went to work for a hedge fund on the west coast and then started my own firm in 2003 and managed uh, money in basically in high yield for a number of years got to the end of a uh, of a long and kind of investing career and thought I was probably done <laughs> And I decided to do some small cap investing, some venture investing. And one of the names I ran across at the time was Eastside. And I remember going to visit the company and having this moment where I was like, if I was in my 20s, this is where I'd want to work. And uh, left, made an investment in the company, and then promptly saw it turn south very quickly and got involved. Um, the CEO at the time uh, offered to have me join the board and see if I could help out uh, the team. And that's really how I started. I got on the board, began to see some of the challenges the company had, but at the same time, all the things I was excited about at the very beginning were still there. So I found myself getting more involved. One of the risks that investors you know, face is creeping deeper into a position where you're you know, in too big. And in this case, it didn't really happen that way with me financially. It happened that way with me with my time. I just fell in love with the company, the products, the people, you know, the 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 team, frankly, and frankly, other stakeholders who are also as passionate about the company's future as I was. And uh, and I jumped in with both feet. Got it. And and if you don't mind me asking, you know, when after that initial investment, you saw things going south, but what 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 happened? What was going on? And 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 what did you do to come in to say, okay, here's the solution. Let's go from here. So this is a great. That's a really great question because probably the biggest mistake that uh, a lot of investors make is imposing their own view of what is happening in a company, as opposed to really pushing forward and finding the true nuggets of wisdom that are telling you the truth and not reacting to things that you want to believe you're seeing and believe that those are actually happening. In this case, I really believe the Redneck Riviera product was going to roll out nationwide and a big pipe that was delivering that product all over the United States was going to be a pipe that we could bring all our other products through and get quick distribution. And it's a quick way to hop over the challenges of, a, of the three-tier distribution of spirits and basically accomplish the same thing that George Clooney do, has done and others have done in, in racing to get a lot of point of distribution and then building a business uh, that way with that, you know, big sucking sound of product moving into many different stores. That proved incorrect. You know, it proved it was a flawed concept. It wasn't actually happening that way. And but the bigger thing that I realized when I got in the company is the importance of leadership. I mean, they teach you this at, you know, 
MBA schools. They taught me this at, at Wake Forest as a, a BS and business student. I mean, this is one of the first finance classes I had and management classes I had is the importance of strong management. And over years, you start to stop thinking about that. It's old news, but it never was more important than in this situation where we really needed to have great management on the board, great management skills in the company, and, uh, and, and the company needed to make more investments there, I think. Well, I was, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think any, anybody might've probably drawn that same conclusion, right? Like that's, that's not an unreasonable thesis to think, okay, Redneck Riviera, we have that distribution pipeline. Let's partner with some other maybe known celebrities on another brand and bang, here we go. Let's just push it out there. So, I mean, what about that ultimately was, was the flawed side of it? It's, and you know what, this again is where a second year analyst at at an investment bank could have called this out. And it was, a classic case of you've been in the business for so long and you missed a fundamental, a curveball that could have been hit, misplaced, and you just weren't ready for it. And that's this simple concept, which is we were building Redneck Riviera in Portland. All the material that we had purchased sits in Indiana. So in order to build it, we had to ship it to Portland. <laughs> we had to put it in a bottle. We put in a bottle on small scale, and then we are shipping it all the way back across in, you know, the nation into, into markets, and you're competing with Diageo, right? And uh, so you really need to be world-class in production supply chain to compete with Diageo. And we were competing in a, you know, a, a lower price point uh, category. And so that was a real big challenge. How do you compete with Diageo on cost? and get a product there and be able to be competitive, right? And uh, that was a, a clear uh, miscalculation on how to build a business, you know, uh, at that point. Got it. All right, so take me to where we're at today. You know, is it, it sounds like it's the concept is still there, you know, that Diageo model, partnering, building brands, right. canning, this, the whole thing. Is that is that where we're still at? This is a bigger a bigger story than that. I would argue that well, the story that we have today is bigger than the John Rich story of rolling out Redneck Riviera okay. nationwide. And the reason why it's bigger is we've replaced what I would call a four-cylinder engine with a V12. <laughs> it really is a V12. And I would look at it this way. you On one side of the business, you have the spirits business, which we've been talking about. We have core brands. And when you actually line the brands up against our competitors, the value of some of the brand equity in the brands in our intense markets, let's take Portland as an example, is much higher than some of the other brands that we face up against. Like Pendleton is an example. I mentioned that on the last call. Pendleton is a great brand. It's a great brand. It's built by a local uh, competitor, HRD, sold Proximo. It's, uh, it's a great uh, story. But when you compare Burnside bourbons to the Pendleton brand and you actually compare the quality of the product, I mean, we are are pretty pretty regularly winning when we do these kind of uh, um, market analysis and, and taste testings, and so we think that these brands are ready to really move onto a regional and eventually natural national scale. But the big difference is you don't get to just show up and say, "I'm going to be in Safeways all over the country." You get invited, all right. And so we're working on the invitation. And you have to get invited because you're the best, you know, catch in the, in the neighborhood. That's half of the business of the, what I call the V12, the big, the big spirits drive tremendous amounts of value down the road. The other half of the business is really a technology opportunity and a paradigm shift in, in uh, beverage uh, and uh, craft beverage. And that's the part that I don't think people really understand yet. That was never in place when I joined. That's relatively new. And it's probably a bigger growth opportunity near term than anything else we have going on in spirits. Well, let's <laughs> let's go down that rabbit hole right now. I mean, we'll come back to right. you know because I got questions on operational efficiency because I'm sure I'm sure that's part of your ask part of the story when it comes to you know how you differentiate yourself with some of your competition out there. But sure. I mean, you served it up so nice right here <laughs> with the technology side. So what right. what what is it? What's so okay. exciting about it? Let's go. Well, let's go for a walk together, a virtual walk in your local grocery store. Walk with me. Let's go have a beer. It's a Thursday. I'm going to break my, I'm fasting. I'm actually not having alcohol until for, for Lent, but I'm going to, I'm going to break my fast. We're going to go for a walk in, in the grocery store. So we walk in the grocery store 
and we're walking down the aisle and we're looking for the beer section, right? And you go up to a, a, a helpful, you know, Carlucci's grocery store attendant and you say, hey, I'm looking for a beer. And he goes, oh, that's either an aisle, you know, 11 or an aisle two. And you stop for a minute and say, well, okay, what's the difference? Aisle 11 is just a shelf. Aisle two is a cold case. Well, we're going to get cold beer. So we walk down aisle, you know, two looking for the beer. And as we walk down the, the, the aisle, we start to see things that we, you know, recognize. We see, you know, Budweiser and, and a number of the different brands that are very familiar. They're on the bottom of the shelf or they're in the cold case on the bottom of the shelf. And, and they sell in large volume in the walk-in cooler. But as you get to the real main beer section, there are brands that you've never seen before. And they are presented in a very exciting, you know, interesting fashion. You've got super single, you got always and forever. You have just brands that just are crazy sounding. What we're seeing are small, really super regional. In some cases, they're even micro-regional brands building just in beer. And I'm going to use that example because that's the most developed. And they have completely dislodged, you know, Anheuser-Busch. They've dislodged cores from, from, from key places. I mean, these are huge places, placements in probably the most valuable space in the grocery store. You're spending on cold cases, right? And they're tiny little no-name brands there. How did they get there, right? How did they get there? They got there because of innovation and beverage. And it's happening not just in beer. It's happening in ciders, kombuchas. It's happening in teas, waters, everywhere. And the most exciting part about it is it's not going in glass and it's not going in anything really other than aluminum. And what's exciting about this opportunity is another business that we purchased about the same time we started working with uh, John Rich is a company called Craft Canning. Now we refer to it as Craft Canning and Printing. And what Craft started doing is they would go to these smaller breweries in uh, Portland and they'd say, hey, listen, let me help bottle our canvas for you. Most of the guys were going into into kegs, right, on-premise on in restaurants. And when the pandemic happened, you know, a lot of these small, uh, you know, brewers had to figure out how to get their stuff in the, in the cans immediately. We have a system of mobile canning equipment that goes and fills up these, um, these you know, uh, these, just, these small brewers and puts their, their product in cans. But the big thing that we've just recently done is invested in um, – digital printing equipment that allows us to digitally print on cans. Now, what's interesting about that, a lot of things are interesting. First of all, we go back to our grocery store tour. You reach in and you grab your favorite, you know, uh, beer and you identify, hey, it's a four pack and I'm paying $17 for it. But when I reach in and I grab it, you're touching something that's weird. It's a sticker label on a bright aluminum can or it's a plastic sleeve which doesn't make the can recyclable on a bright aluminum can and the reason why they're they're labeled that way is because small brewers can't do enough volume to print their cans the way you would see a coke can printed or, or a starbucks can printed and the colors that you can do are limited to a handful of colors because the printing process is old school it's the way that they used to print my my kids uh you know jerseys on the little league team you'd You'd print and you'd have to print, you know, a thousand little league jerseys to get something reasonable in price. Now they use digital technology with, you know, little league jerseys and you can get one jersey customized any way you want. That has just shown up in can printing, but it's really focused on uh, the craft segment. And craft East Side is an opportunity for investors to participate in that brand new technology about, you know, uh, introduction in the United States. We're one of the handful, I'd say probably there's only three companies, maybe four, that have digital can printing in the United States today. And we're going to be the only one in Portland, a key craft market. So, I mean, just on that side alone, I mean, what's, I, I get it. There's, okay, there's, there's not that, not that much competition, but what's, what's the opportunity as it exists right now? Oh, it's a big opportunity because, and this is where I talk about a paradigm shift. Okay. When people showed up with Facebook and they said, hey, we're going to do a, a group of our friends and we're going to post things and people couldn't see what it was becoming. When, when you talk about a paradigm shift, you're talking about you're looking at something through 
your own personal view window of what you understand, right? Frame of reference is one way to refer to it. Uh, digital printing completely changes your ability to envision merchandising frame of reference. So what do I mean by that? The little guy that put the little label on his can, it took him six months to figure that out. He put money into a label. He has to do supply chain. He's got to get the label shipped to him, right? And then he's going to put them on a can. And so he's brewing beer specifically to fit the number of consumables he has in his inventory. Our digital printing capability allows us to take a stack of 8,169 cans and a big pallet, put it in a machine, and we can print every single can with a different label. We can print every can with the same label, but slightly change it in one small section. What does that do for us? It opens up huge possibility. We can put coupons on, on cans. We can put the, you know, details about the beer. As a change, we can you can put in details about the the, um, the local events that are happening. You can do a tie-in with a, uh, a music festival. You can even put the weather on. And the reason why you can do it is because you're able to do it real time. So what's important about this for the company is it allows people to really change the marketing and their go-to-market strategy. Instead of always going and getting the same old Coors beer can, now you can have a, literally a unique beer every time you go to the store and it changes it and makes it into something that's even bigger, you know, collectible, right? I had someone recently say, Hey, why are you even bothering to print for, for beer cans? You could just do weddings. You could do birthdays. You could do, we, we could literally do anything. We had one group that said, Hey, why don't you put every, you know, dog that was, you know, uh, adopted by the ASPCA in Portland on half the beer can. And I'm like, great idea. So it's really gated by the marketing genius that's coming. And this category that we're talking about is the one that's super creative, has come up with the really creative you know, concepts and marketing. And we think they will use this tool to the best of its ability and get super creative with it. So we're excited about delivering this capability to our customer. We're literally changing any beer can, any beverage can, doesn't even have to be beer, you know, cider, as I said, kombucha, anything, and really making the can completely unique. Got it. And where, where are we at right now with the tech? Is it is it validated? Did, done some testing, or are we currently? Still we it is is we're off and running. And you can check us out on Instagram. And there are other companies that have, have been able to source the same technology that we have. There's a limit to how many of these uh, printers can be produced. So we're fortunate that we have. Uh, a key one, the only one in the Pacific Northwest, but we have an outstanding team, including creative people that are really already using this, this, this machine to do some amazing uh, marketing for people. So we're off and running. Got it. And so in terms of how it fits in with the current business, is this now something that you, when you're reaching out to, you know, potential folks to partner with, or you're developing your own, uh, own new brands, now you say, hey, look, not only do we have all the capabilities of, you know, can we have the canning side, help you with the branding, but now we can do this as well. Like, is, right. is that one of the things yeah. that puts it over the top when maybe a celebrity or somebody else is evaluating between you and somebody else? Yeah, Robert, this is really where it's, I think it's the aha moment where you think it's going to be good. And now you start to get phone calls and you're like, oh, wow, this really is good. I'll give you an example. Um, if you're going to make beer and you're going to actually have your beer can printed so it can be recycled, uh, you go to ball and you have to produce at least or buy from them at least a million cans a year per SKU, right? And a lot of people are doing that. Now ball has actually kicked those out, kicked people out who can't do that kind of volume. So we initially, we were thinking we're going to just be working with a lot of small craft guys. Now we have big people calling us. Big people call us wanting to print for them because they can't print the old fashioned way because of the supply chain challenges. So that's one thing, but you're right. Our business model before now was service. We go fill for people. And if we had an opportunity to sell cans, we would. And we had a really great year in 2020 selling cans. Last year wasn't so great selling cans. This year is different because if you're going to print with us, you got to buy cans from us. And so the company has moved from buying a few million cans a year to now we're going to be buying 
you know, um, you know, 25, 30 million cans to start with moving to 60, 70. And that puts us in a completely different ball game as far as sourcing cans, the price of the can and delivering customers cans. So our funnel, if we go back to the concept of, you know, you know, when we attack the market, we have a customer, we're trying to sell more than one service, right? Trying to get a bigger funnel. And uh, here our share of wallets growing because we're going to be selling cans. We're going to be digitally printing for them. We're going to be selling other disposables. And we're hoping also in some cases to do the filling part of the business too. So we've gone from a one arrow kind of quiver to multi arrows to go in the quiver. And uh, I mean, we're, we're the scale of the customer and the scope of the customers has grown. So we've gone from just beer to all segments from just small guys to all size customers, really, really big opportunity. And it's going to be, it's already gated by capacity. So, you know, the company is, uh, is really seeing tre- you know, tremendous opportunity on this canning side, canning printing side. Got it. So what would you say makes Eastside unique and different compared to some of your, your peers out there? Is I'll it- tell you why. Yeah. And this is, I'll jump this question because this is a great question. Everybody talks about private equity venture capital why i can't get in, in involved in a company and start you know in the in a venture stage and i've seen that i understand i appreciate that what's unique about this company is it's public our nasdaq ticker is east e-a-s-t and we are in the early stage of a really exciting upcycle on this technology and digital can printing but the great part about it is it's a two-for-one special Robert, it's not just digital printing you're getting. You're also getting spirits brands. The last one that you had the chance to do that really was Castle Brands in scale. And they owned Jefferson Bourbon. That business was sold for a quarter of a billion dollars. Stock, you know, I don't know, double, tripled on that news when they were sold um, to Pernod, I think, that was the acquirer. Um, we, we have another great opportunity here as we've spoke about in spirits. We're not as big in bourbon as Jefferson is, but our bourbons are every bit as good, if not better. And there's a lot of reasons why that is. But, you know, that bourbon brand, bourbon, the specific of the Burnside bourbon, if it grows into a super regional brand, it can have an outstanding end result. So when you look at the company, it's a public company. Investors have an opportunity to participate in that. And you're really getting two distinctly unique growth opportunities that are highly valuable. So I think that's uh, what makes us really unique. What, what would you say is is the one thing or, or multiple things that investors maybe still maybe misunderstand or fail, or fail to appreciate about the business as it exists today? So everybody wants to, still, they call me and they say, hey, why do you want to get involved in canning? I mean, that's a low multiple business. And well, I mean, you know, and spirits is a multiple of revenue. And I'm like, I completely understand that view. But what you don't understand is on the canning side, the small craft beverage, it's proliferated dramatically. I mean, go to this grocery store again, and let's move from the beer aisle to another aisle. How many different brands do you see now in a can? I mean, of anything, it's, you can't even keep track of them. You know, this is the Levi's opportunity. You know, there are two guys that wandered over to the West Coast and they found themselves in San Francisco. And one guy said, crap, I'm missing out. I got to get to the hills and start digging for gold. And one guy said, look at all these guys digging for gold. I think I'm going to sell pickaxes and jeans. And that was the genesis of Fleabots. We're doing the same thing in craft. We're going to you know, offer to serve people as they build great fortunes and opportunities for, them, for their company. We're going to do that in the near term. You're going to see dramatic growth. And as we, that's my expectation. And then as we move from there, we're going to see the real value long-term built by these outstanding brands that end up being worth a large amount of money, I hope, over time. Two different types of uh, businesses, two different investment streams, two different time periods. But that's what's really exciting about this company. Got it. So another question I have, and, and uh, you know, I reached out to a, a couple of investors to get some questions to, to help me in our interview today. And one of them I, I, I wanted to, to bring up was, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here on this, but I guess is the industry is running out of aluminum, aluminum cans 
and that and many operators are kind of struggling with this right now. I guess it's a supply chain issue. So, how right. how, how how is Eastside dis- Distilling, you know, managing these some of these issues going on in the industry right now? That's a great question. So, and this is why di- digital camp printing was huge this year for us. So, we didn't have a contract last year uh, that was a, a major contract. So, we were buying cans basically through brokers. There's two major can suppliers in the United States, right? And they will not take your phone call. Uh, I mean, even big guys that are trying to get cans are struggling to get their, you know, get cans. And so one of the challenges has been sourcing the cans. That was our issue last year. So someone can buy cans if they can buy them directly from the manufacturer and then they get traded and the price goes up and they end end up in, you know, in a user's hands and they're more expensive. So this year we have moved uh, up the pecking order with digital can printing, we entered into a, a contract with a Canadian can provider who has a direct relationship with uh, with Crown, and we uh, buy their cans and we ship them just over the border of Washington into Portland. Have a large can facility. What I, I like to refer as a can bank, blank cans, and we can pull those down and print them and, and deliver them to customers. So we have a committed contract. Now, aluminum prices can go up, but everybody's going to be suffering the same fate. The thing that I think is important for people to realize is new capacity eventually will come online. They're working on that domestically. And there's actually also uh, other forms of capacity you can get from Asia and from Mexico. So like all businesses now, there's supply chain challenges and cans are no different. But in our case, we're in a much, much better position now. In fact, I think it's a strategic opportunity for us because others that compete with us don't have this same can supply. So that's good. Gotcha. And, you know, I guess I, I should probably take a step back because I want to understand, because I, I guess I don't have a full understanding of how you even source the cans to begin with, you know, and how, how that all works. So maybe for those that don't understand before right. we even got to the issues, <laughs> so you know, how, how, how does that actually work? You know, you know, it's funny you should say that because I, when I got involved and we started working on this problem, you know what? I realized there's probably a more liquid can trading environment in Portland, at least in our market, than there was in high yield in 1998. I mean, you could pick up the phone and you think you could buy something from a broker, a TLJ or somebody here or that, and there's nothing to be had. And, there, and the trades are hard and rare. But it seems like perception is there's, it's deep and, and, you know, very liquid market in, in some forms of, you know, of, of high yield. Here in cans, you know, there are tremendous amounts of cans that are getting purchased because they know that they're valuable and they get traded. So when you have a commodity that holds its value, so aluminum will hold its value, right? So it's easier for other participants to get involved, buy stock, hold it, and wait for it to go up in value or seek a, a, a higher payer for, for the product that you have. And so the wholesale, you know, business in our in our area in cans is very healthy. A lot of trading and that stuff going on. We've moved away from that because it infects your margins, right? You might be paying more and it also hurts your customer without constantly having to pass through price increases because you've sourced poorly. So um, that was a key issue. And so the digital can st- uh, printing strategy was, was, was important because it pushed us into a new business, but it also moved us out of this environment where we, you know, had to worry about the near-term effect of where we're going to get get cans from, and we're buying large contracts. We have a large contract to buy a lot of cans. So, you know, in terms of operational efficiency, and you know, with all the things that have gone on, not just since you you joined, but especially in the last two years of with COVID and now supply chain issues, you know, is that is that a big differentiator for Eastside? Is trying to, you know, keep, keeping costs as low as possible, you know, trying to generate as healthy a margin as possible. I'd love, love to hear your perspective there and how sure. that differentiates from some of your competitors. Let's back up for a second. Okay. And let's go back to business 101. Yes. When I went to Wake Forest and I took my first finance class and I remember with Professor Gobia sitting there and I remember hearing him say, nothing good happens until you sell something and you drive margins wider. How do you get margins wider? You can sell it for more right? And you can push your costs down lower. We're doing both on both sides of the business. So in spirits, we're really working on lowering our cost. We have an advantage in bourbon 
because we sit on over 2000 barrels of, of bourbon that's aging super fast, right? That's a huge part of the story we haven't talked about. You know, we bought too much bourbon because we thought that we were going to fill that pipeline that followed the John Rich product, uh, Redneck Riviera, and all this bourbon we bought years ago, and we never had the growth. So we're sitting there now with bourbon in uh, warehouses, and it's aging super fast. This bottle right here of our bourbon, you know, well, it's almost gone because I've been drinking quite a bit of it, but this bottle is probably like closer to $100 worth of bourbon based on the age, it's overaged, right? And we put it in a you know, $40 bottle. And so we've worked on improving our cost of goods sold, but also getting a fair price for the bourbon, making sure that people realize, hey, you're not buying you know, Pendleton or Litchfield or something like that, that is just kind of you know, put together and it's aged for a couple of years, right? This is something that's much different. On the, on the craft side, we're doing the same thing. We're offering higher margin, uh, product offerings, such as the digital printing and some of the other services that we're doing, storage, many things, a whole kind of suite of services for, for people. And we're charging more for that as in total. And we're driving the cost down lower. We consolidated all our operations on, on the canning side, the craft printing side into one big facility that we've just opened. And in spirits, we've done the same. We've pushed on our supply chain and lowered our costs. We've gotten some of our bottle costs lower. So both sides of the equation, Revenues, pricing up, costs lower. Now, Robert, the critical piece is volume. And then that's what we're working on both sides of the business. More volume in craft through digital printing, right? Driving customers and more volume at, uh, on the spirit side, right? And that was pro that's probably the biggest challenge that we've been working on lately. Got it. All right. So now my next question for you is on the capital allocation side of things. So Right. You know, where what what's your strategy there? How do you think about it? Are you look? You know, once you get there, are you looking at various M and A opportunities, or what, what's your thought there? Yes. So we, I have a list on my desk. You know, that I look at pretty much every day, and it has all these capital projects, deals, you know, investments in existing businesses, investments along the line, not just cap, CapEx investments that grow with machinery, but also marketing partnerships. And every single one of them is, has outstanding returns. The challenge for the company is, you know, the market sees us and doesn't really understand the full scope of the opportunity. And so we have a really low valuation. So using equity capital right now to make investments, even though on the surface, it might look dilutive, it actually probably is accretive down the road if we were to decide to do that. We think, though, there are better ways to, to kind of skin the cat. And so we've been using other approaches so we don't have to use so much equity uh, to, to build out and uh, fund as many capital projects as, as we can. We've done that through we're working on sale leaseback of the printing equipment. We've uh, tried to unlock some of the value of all that Burnside uh, whiskey that we've been saving for years. That for a while has been uh, borrowed. We, we borrowed on that from Live Oak, uh, which is a, our lending partner. We think the value of that is tremendous, much higher than what we borrowed from in the past. We've done a couple swaps on on um, on barrels to, to unlock some value, things that we didn't really even need that don't go in any of our products. So we've done a lot of that stuff. But when it comes to actually deciding what to invest in and what to do, I think you should expect to see us continue to invest in the digital printing opportunity because that is a rocket ship. And so we'll work on that first. And the longer term investments we're making in spirits are harder to see, but they're meaningful. One of them is we partner with the Portland Trailblazers and the Moda Center in Portland. That's a long-term partnership that really gets our products out and in front of everybody. We've partnered with a local minor league baseball team called the Pickles. You know, we're all over pickle stuff. And interestingly enough, there's all these digital printing opportunities to cross-pollinate between both sides of the business. So I think you'll see uh, more investments in spirits become more obvious. One last one I'll mention is last year we partnered with uh, Pepsi, with Lay's, and we did a, a Lay's potato vodka. And you know what? I think uh, our friends at Pepsi really loved it. And maybe there's more stuff to do there. We'll have to see. But uh, the the opportunities are, are, are immense and we're kind of racing along to fund as many as we can. So another devil's advocate kind of question. 
ask it to everybody. So <laughs> I, I, I got to set it up like that because I don't want you to, you know, you know, say, all right, thanks, Bob, later. But um, <laughs> but I have to ask, you know, what what would you say, in your opinion, are, are some of the company's downside risks? Just if, if you had if in your opinion, I, I think the downside, one of the downside risks, I mean, well, Bobby, this is a great, a great question because businesses struggle with uh, not failure many times, but from success. So one of our risks right now is to manage the explosive growth and working capital. When you go from, you know, a business that was just servicing um, craft uh, beverage, you know, providers to one that's doing a lot of service for them, including providing them with the cans and the printing. There's a lot of cans we have to buy and to serve and sit on. And so we have to manage the working capital growth. So that's a risk right now, right? Is not having that throttle growth. In other words, take so much capital that it slows us down in other areas. Another risk is just really where we are in, in the rolling out the strategy is executing well right? Making sure that we serve customers well on, on the craft side, making sure that we um, deliver with partners, in particular with uh, our key distribution partners, R&DC, on the spirit side and keep them engaged. We have lost sight on, that, on, on doing that in the past and disenfranchised people. And as far as I'm you know, concerned, as long as I'm here, we will never do that again. We're going to stay super engaged and make sure all stakeholders see us as a great partner. And so, and so that's a, another risk that we have to continue to keep our eyes open for. And then lastly is the external factors. I mean, Bob, you, you know this probably better than I do, but I can tell you for a fact that the supply chain disruption doesn't feel like it's temporary, right? It feels like it's rolling through. Now, as concerning as that is, smart companies are going to use it as an opportunity. And so I'll just uh, take a minute to shout out to my competitors. If you think you're going to sell stuff in my market and you're shipping it here, you're going to get crushed. <laughs> I mean, diesel prices are going to crush you. Freight rates are going to crush you. You know, however, I got a benefit. I'm up in Portland. Walmart, Walmart buys stuff and it all comes through, through Los Angeles and the trucks go north. When they go back south, they're empty. So my freight rates going south are cheaper than your freight rates going north. So I'm coming for you if you live in San Diego. <laughs> so I look at supply chain and I see it as an opportunity to roll up my, my, my sleeves and start boxing, right? It takes an, it gives you a small company an opportunity to get nimble and flexible and fight big guys and effectively. And uh, so um, while that might scare people, hey, supply chain looks like it could get worse for a lot of people and we got challenges in our country, I see it as an opportunity for us to go at it, right? I'm ready to I'm ready to freaking I'm, I'm, I'm ready for I'm ready to go into the ring. Let's go. Um, right. So uh, another question I have for you that I also ask this to everybody on here is, you know, public company. I mean, how much, if at all, have your shareholders influenced, you know, any of your decision making process, or maybe consult with them on, you know, hey, what do you think about this? How would you do that? Hey, that's a great question too. You know, shareholders have a tremendous value and, and role to play. And I was one for years. Sat on the other side, in your shoes, other people's shoes, looked into the company, peered in, and you have a perspective of a very wide-angled view of all these companies that are forming, how they're doing, mistakes they're making, and the feedback that comes back into a company, which has sometimes it's a very myopic focus, is hopeful because it helps sit, set the stage of, hey, wait a second, we're doing this wrong. You know, or we're not aware of this risk, or we weren't thinking about it uniquely, right? The way that someone else was. So I love these calls that I get from investors and I take them seriously, right? And I, you know, take a lot of the information. In fact, on the, on the conference calls we have, we, sometimes we have criticism. People are disappointed that things don't happen faster. And I think it's important for you to kind of, uh, as a leader, take those in, understand them, and, uh, and use them to your advantage. So I think we've done that more so. One thing that we have, uh, a hurt and we will do. And this is a, a one of the things is that we're talking about now is, is to be more active in um, getting the word out. So we're going to be having an investor day right after Memorial day in Portland. We're going to have people come see digital printing. We're going to get uh, more news about that out for people to make plans and, and that they want to come visit. And at the same time, we're going to introduce them to really the changes we made in spirits to drive volume. 
So um, um, we're, that's an example where a lot of people said, hey, you, you got an incredible story. Why aren't you telling it better? Well, talking to Bob now, he's going to get the word out. <laughs> we're going to tell the story a lot, many, a lot more uh, here in the future. Very good. So, All right. So uh, I got two more questions for you. Um, this one, where, where do you see the, well, three actually, technically. Um, but where do you see the company three to five years from now? And then what are the inflection points that you think will then ultimately then realize what that vision is? Sure. So last summer we put out uh, a strategic plan and I believe we're still on tra track with what that is. That plan has a company growing substantially. I don't think there's any reason why we can't grow north of a quarter of a billion dollars in our market cap eventually if we execute the plan. I gave the example on the last uh, conference call where uh, Marcion, the, uh, the master of fiat who orchestrated the merger with, uh, with Chrysler. And when everybody thought the automakers were dead, I remember he was on a conference call and I was an analyst, you know, doing my work and listening to it. And I remember him saying, to the auto, you know, analysts as a group on that call, he said, listen, the plan's in place. All we have to do actually to do is execute the plan. And if we execute the plan, our EBITDA is going to be X and we're going to generate so much free cash flow. You know, I forget the number. And uh, I remember an analyst and asking him, you know, like, how can this be? How can you actually believe that you can generate more, more free cash flow than, than Ford or GM? And his response was so emphatic. It was like, you know what? You can choose not to believe, but I'm looking at a plan. And if we execute the plan, we're going to create incredible amounts of value. I'm going to use the same you know, anecdote to explain that I have a plan in front of me for craft uh, uh, canon printing and for spirits that drives this company into a completely different zip code as far as uh, the size and scope of the company. I would be really disappointed if we don't see that happening in the next 18 months. What are the inflection points? Well, the first inflection point is this month is turning on digital can printing, right? Getting that off and running. The second inflection point is going to be the back half of the year when, when we get to see, you know, how spirits is biting and taking root. We are giving that business a lot of gas. The wheels are spinning. Will we get traction and pick up speed? I'm hopeful for that. And I believe with, uh, our new uh, chief commercial officer there, Amy Lancer, we're off and running. Part of that's going to get is gated on our execution, and I will admit that one part is gated on our partners with R and DC and the distribution and whether or not we can get that um, locked and loaded and get them as engaged as we are. I think we have been um, had great conversation with them, so I think Spirits is in a good place. The last piece that I'd hope to see is by the third, fourth quarter. Investors have a different view on the outlook of the company. And I can't, I'm not going to pre-announce first quarter numbers. I'm not going to speak to second quarter's numbers or anything like that. But my hope is that we're going to be in a place where people look at this company and have a different perception of growth, right? Of what the growth curve looks like for us. And, and the, the market reacts to that. I mean, so I think those are the three things that I'm looking for this particular year, but I would be really disappointed if we didn't see ourselves on that path and the market saw us on the path of the three-year plan, which puts us well over a quarter of a billion in market cap going forward. Very good. Final question for you today before we close it out. Um, how's, how's been your experience being a public company CEO? You know, how, how are you enjoying it? It's difficult uh, yeah. for you? You know, I'd love, like to hear your experience there. So that, you know what, that's a, that's a, something that I've thought about a lot <laughs> to tell you, you know, being a small company, public company is hard. It's uh, hard because the, the demands that we have as a public reporting company is, are involved. And you can see why a lot of people choose to go the private equity route, choose to be private, you know, keep everything to themselves. I really believe there's one you know, important factor about that, which is everybody should benefit from great opportunities, right? And if all the high growth companies were just gobbled up by the private equity world, you know, then we're going to, it's not a really fair system for people as far as, you know, being looking for great investment opportunities. So 
I'm willing to put the work in to, you know, bring this to everybody, bring everybody a chance to take a look at a company like this that's really early on. I've recently, you know, showed my interest in uh, in the in, in getting deeper in financially to in the company by making a large purchase of stock in the company over the last couple of weeks, and uh, and I don't see any reason why um, you know that won't continue, right? So uh, as far as my commitment to the company going forward, so I'm excited about it, and uh, but I have to tell you, it's not like trading bonds. <laughs> it's the focus is longer. But the piece that really makes a lot of sense is trading bonds is different. It's a small team. This is a great team with a much longer involved. A lot of these people have a tremendous amount of experience, Bob, that I don't have. And they've been great to work with. So it's, it's been a, a good experience all in all. Very good. Well, Jeffrey, with that, where can our audience go and find more information to follow along the Eastside Distilling story? You can certainly look, up, look, up, look us up online under Eastside Distilling. Or just simply go and you know Yahoo Finance and take a look at East E A S T. But I would encourage you to seek out some of our outstanding products uh, in Portland if you have a chance. Uh, we have one of the best bourbons on the market, and actually, I think one of the bl- best black um, tequilas as well. So it tastes more like a bourbon than it does a tequila. I'll let that be a little little teaser. <laughs> so I would encourage you to check them out. Very cool. And for everybody, their website is uh, eastsidedistilling.com. And, you know, with that, Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay hey. safe. And I thank look you. forward to our next update. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for the time. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party products, services, or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast.